Plundergrounds number 116, the Gygax 75 Challenge, week 3. Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. You may recall that a little over a month ago, J.J. Lanza and I were doing the Gygax 75 challenge. That challenge is derived from an article that Gary Gygax wrote in a 1975 wargaming magazine called Europa, in which he described how to get your own home campaign going by building a dungeon, uh, an associated town, and a little bit of the world around it. We divided it up into a five-week challenge, and I wrote a little bit of a, a guidebook or workbook to go along with it, and we were testing that out. So here is our conversation for week three in which we build a dungeon. We've actually finished uh, the whole challenge by now. I've, I've taken a long time to get these conversations edited, so there's been a bit of a break since the last time I, I talked about Gygax 75, uh, and I'm in the process of revising the workbook because uh, while some of it worked quite well, other pieces of it could use some improvement and I'll be getting that out again shortly um, now that the challenge is over and we've got some insight. I think it's something that I'll probably work on you know, off and on over the next couple of years as people give me feedback. But uh, the idea is to make something that is a little bit of a pocket digest where you can work on, uh, work on your own little campaign world a week at a time and have achievable goals and creative prompts to help you get going. So should be fun. In the meantime, here is our uh, conversation about week three. We talk about the challenges of building three levels of a dungeon and the time commitment that it takes. We talk about ways to map it out and the placement of monsters and treasures and the story that the dungeon tells us along the way. JJ, it's good to talk to you again. It's good to be back here again. So we are continuing to work on our Gygax 75 challenge. And to be perfectly honest, we are actually done at this point. We're um, speaking after week five, but we have yet to talk about weeks three and four, which were quite interesting. We started to talk about week three, which is building a dungeon. Uh, how did that go for you? It's a lot of work, and I try to imagine what it was like for Gary being a full-time employee, you know, doing his normal normal work stuff, and then coming home, and he's got his kids, and trying to get all of this stuff done, and three three levels is a lot. Even three modest levels is a lot when you think about the layout of the dungeon, the distribution of monsters, the distribution of unusual encounters, such as tricks or traps, and then finally the treasure, the allotting the treasure. It just getting all of that out there took a little bit of effort, and I, I think I did go a little bit beyond what was outlined for that week, being that I took the idea of the random encounters and applied them to the various environments around the dungeon and on each of the levels as well. Right. I found myself in that same situation. I think, well, first of all, we have to remember that 
Gygax didn't have email or Facebook or the internet at all. He had uh, probably TV that wasn't nearly as good as what we're used to. So maybe he had fewer distractions, but yes, it is a lot of work. It's funny because I think the biggest challenge mentally for me to start with didn't end up becoming the biggest challenge, but I, the thought of mapping everything out, cause I get kind of intense about mapping and I have to draw and redraw uh, maps and um, the thought of mapping out three levels of the dungeon kind of freaked me out. And so I started out, I really made a misstep. I started out by uh, somebody had posted a picture of a temple carved from rock in India. I think it was Kalesa. I, I have it in the, my blog post. And I, um, I thought that was really cool. I thought this would be perfect. I found the floor plan of it. I started uh, making a graph map of that floor plan, slightly simplified for my purposes and kind of visualizing what I wanted there. And then I realized I was all caught up in like one specific level and I hadn't done any of the groundwork to kind of step back and, you know, really think about what I wanted to do. And I quote unquote realized that when I was talking to you. And you, you told me how well my instructions were working. And I was thinking, uh, duh, I should follow my own instructions. <laughs> exactly. And I think with week three, that's where I really took your booklet in hand and really f- followed the, the steps of it or really embraced it at that point to use that as a tool. It, it makes a great checklist for what are the things you want to cover to get to that point. And I think this was the one where I I first realized, hey, I did some things out of order and it didn't make sense. And what it resulted in was some rework because I had gone through and applied things incorrectly. Uh, I had treasure flowing out of the dungeon. It's like every room had massive amounts of treasure. I'm like, this isn't right. And when I went back and redid things in the correct order, then it, it made a lot more sense. But it's all about layering, right? Yes. You start with what's the theme? And with the theme, you're able to say, here's what things are important. So it should hopefully make the decision-making process faster. Does this fit? Does it not fit? You can go through and say yes, no, hopefully very quickly, and just put in the things that make the most sense. Then with allotting the monsters, you're saying, here's the key things I definitely want to have happen in here. And then what other things do I want to add beyond that? And now that we've got the theme, uh, what are the evocative elements of that theme? How can I bring that theme to light at the table? And what monsters are going to be used? What treasures are going to be used? What tricks and traps are going to be used? You've got this excellent framework now that you could literally play. But by today's standards, and I think here's where the big difference is, by today's standards, it is very bare bones compared to what you would ever hand off to somebody. These are absolutely designer notes that I'm the only one that would be able to kind of run these from from the outline, whereas I'm sure you would be in the same boat. You would run yours from the outline, but it's not anything that you would ever be able to turn over to somebody else and say, here you go, here's a first-level dungeon. There's still lots more stuff that would have to be added and refined to get it to that point. I think that's a great point because it's, I fell into this trap and I think we often do uh, creators in general or GMs, people that write, you know, you're going to build a world. There's a big difference between building a world for publication or having somebody else run it and just building the world out for your own use at the table. And you got to remember that you're just making notes for play. You're not trying to 
you're not trying to write a module. And uh, that was that was kind of lesson number one. For me, the, the work came in two big phases. And the second phase was Monsters and Treasures. So I'll get to that in a minute. But for me, after I got off of being focused in on that rock temple and st- took a step back, I thought the advice for themes, uh, for features, and the idea of making kind of a, a mind map or node map or bubble map, whatever you want to call it, of the flow of the dungeon, that's what really helped me. And those three things kind of came together, but there was a bit of a, a sequence. Themes come first. Got to have some kind of theme in your head to, to get you drawing. And then it helps to have a theme for each level. I actually used a trick from Perilous Wilds where you roll and build a budget for that theme. So it tells you how many times you have to reference it somehow. And then I started making that bubble map. And then the features came as I was drawing the map. or And sometimes even after I'd finish a level, I'd say... What's the most interesting room or area in the dungeon? And that's my, that became my feature for that level. Did, was it kind of similar for you? Absolutely. And I think the idea for using those themes and having a, you know, generating, I need to get six themes or I need to get five themes into this for it to feel like that. There were times where I was forced to come up with other ones. And sometimes once I got past a certain minimum number, the rest of them kind of flowed very easily. Mm. But I think that budget that you're talking about really forces you to think about, are there other ways? Uh, Are we dealing with uh, audio cues? Are we dealing with Mm -hmm. sensory cues? Are we dealing with a type of architecture? Are we dealing with signs of what the monsters are on this level? What are the... What are all the different possible things that could reinforce this theme? And I think once you start, once you start with that, I think the rest of the stuff fills in pretty easily. Yeah, I think there might be even a bit of good advice to say don't use the same thing each time to reinforce the theme. So, like if your theme is spiders, sure, one of the things in there could be a giant spider or a nest of spiders, mm-hmm. and of course webbing and some of the more obvious stuff, right? But an arch. Uh, with a stone spider as the keystone or a uh, like poison, like a bottle of poison or something like that. Different ways to sell the spider theme without actually referencing the same thing every time. I was going to say, what about if you had cracks in the masonry that were like a spider web breaking out? Oh, sure. Just a way to subtly reinforce the theme, but it's not necessarily spiders themselves but the way everything's crumbling and it it has a it has a pseudo web-like design to it perfect or a cluster of like eight glowing gems that are arranged like spider eyes Mm -hmm. there's just different ways to sell that theme that makes it pretty rich and i think it's it's fun to try to to vary it and i think having a theme is something that it really speaks to players. It really speaks to me. I think one of the things I actually, I don't play a lot of video games. But one of the things I liked about the old Eye of the Beholder video game on PC was that every every level had kind of a different color and masonry pattern and all that. And so it was very easy to, to kind of get in the mood of each level or place yourself within the levels. Exactly. And that was the very first thing was I needed to come up with a descriptive name for the level to help reinforce the theme. There's one theme that all of the other elements build upon. And I think that is, that's really key. That's really the first step. Finding something that speaks to you about that level. 
Do you want to tell one of your themes? You have a, like a favorite element that came out of there that surprised you? Sure. I'll, I'll start with one of the levels here. Uh, there's a level devoted to the catacombs of the necromancer's army. And one of the inspiring elements are the catacombs under various cities, very medieval catacombs that were uh, places to store the bones. And they take on different characteristics. Uh, Often they're decorated in a certain way. There were ones, especially in France, where they are lined with bones. And I just loved that image of you're walking down a corridor and there is just nothing but bones and skulls and you would come upon little, uh, not crypts, but little openings where they would lay other complete sets of bones to rest. And so one of my evocative uh, elements is ossuary walls lined with bones. Also painted scenes of the necromancer raising the dead, trying to make just the environment itself as creepy as possible. Yeah bringing this to amplify the necromancer's power is how many millions of sets of bones are there in these virtually endless catacombs. One of the things I really like about that is it's um, what I would call a super saturated theme. And I have found that subtlety is overrated in role-playing games, that usually subtlety gets you into trouble. If you really want to sell a theme, sell it. Mm-hmm really put it in there. And I know many GMs have gotten caught in the trap of making a clever puzzle and thinking it's really obvious, but that's because they were the ones who made the puzzle, right? Um, I have found that I'll sometimes take a puzzle and make it, you know, painfully obvious and think, oh, they're going to blow right through this and then watch them as they somehow overcomplicate it (laughs) and make it, you know, far more confusing than it ever should have been. I like to try to not be subtle with my ideas. Well, tell me about one of your levels. Well, okay, so the the first theme that I had was Watchers. I sold that a couple different ways. There's this tomb that's carved from living rock, and so I I did use some of that idea that I had originally run into in the Indian architecture, and I wanted it all enclosed, and there's kind of a colonnaded hall, uh, and so the columns have an ancient race of elephant-headed men that are facing in four directions. And so no matter where you're at, you've got, you know, columns like facing you. That was one thing. Um, In the center of the temple, there's a statue with multiple eyes around its head that's kind of reflective. And that is, it's not a living statue, but it's part of a magical like defense system. And so there is a statue like Stalker that moves around the colonnaded hall on the outside that is blind, but it watches over the hall and, uh, you know, mostly goes by sound. I thought it was going to be kind of clever because it's a monster that if low-level characters fought it, they're just going to get squished. The idea, though, is it's really slow, and it's just to kind of drive characters into, like, different spaces so they don't hang out too long in the colonnaded hall, right, that they have to kind of get into nooks and crannies or find their way into rooms and things. And then uh, finally, another way I sold that was in the Wandering Monster Table, I had some creatures from the next level down, which is there's a nest of, like, giant ants that have tunneled into the side of the tomb. And uh, my word for that level was fungus. And uh, one of the things that I had come up with the idea was that there was this, uh, you've probably seen these uh, science shows about 
uh, fungi that take over the brains of, of insects and make them act funny. And so I had this like element of rogue ants that are not following the normal patterns. Uh, and the, one of the things that fungus does to them is it opens up an eye, like a real eye, kind of a very human eye in the middle of their foreheads. Hmm. So I've got this kind of cyclopean ant that, that has, that is in the wandering table for the first level that's wandered up from below. Oh, and the other thing that I sold there was that this temple had two levels. And so there's kind of an overlook level. So there's a, a balcony, if you will, around the top and also around the inside of the temple where you can overlook or watch over the area. So I tried to sell that idea of watchfulness. But again, like, I don't think I, uh, I think what you did was more successful and that mine ultimately may be kind of subtle. Um, <laughs> it doesn't sound like it when I'm saying it, but at the same time, I'm thinking, will people get that this is all about watching? I don't know that I care, but... If I were really trying to get across the idea of you're being watched, I think I would need, you know, more elements like paintings that follow you or. I think it's all about whether it's something that is important for the characters to figure out or if it's a bonus, if they figure it out. Right. Yeah. If they, if they figure out that everything has a, a, a theme of watching around it, is that something that will provide them a benefit within the dungeon? And if it's there to evoke a feeling or a sense or a environment, then I think you can afford to be subtle. Um, I think mm -hmm. if you want to make it something that they can act upon, that's where you got to be a little more overt, like you said before. That's a great point. Yeah, it's more of an Easter egg. And and honestly, just more of a, in some ways, just more of a creative tool, right? It's a constraint that gives you ideas. And so it's funny how by tying your hands creatively, you actually end up becoming more creative. And this is one of those, this is one of those ideas, right? If you could do anything, you freeze up. It's the blank page syndrome. But if you've got to come up with five ways to sell watchfulness, okay, I can do that, right? <laughs> that gets my right. brain going. Right. And you, you hit upon a point there that I think is important. These levels aren't isolated. You purposefully in, in the booklet talk about add D3 ways up or down per level. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't necessarily have to limit yourself, but I think that's that budget where you want to at least start with this many and figure out where to go from there. But then think about what are the effects of this ability to move back and forth between the levels and that monster that you talked about where it's introduced in the wandering monster table now it's a sense of foreshadowing and it's purposeful if you run into it on the first level and then you see lots more of them on the second level you can take that as being forewarned is forearmed right yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's important. Interconnectivity is something that people miss a lot. And one of the things that I think old older dungeons were smarter about sometimes, which was providing shortcuts to like deeper levels <laughs> that aren't a good thing for low level characters to uh, use, but are there for like if you're going to have repeated part of this was designed around the idea of having repeated raids on a dungeon. So when you're a higher level character, you don't want to have to thread your way through all 50 rooms of the level one to get to level. Uh, and then, you know, 50 rooms of level two or whatever to get all the way down to level three. You just want to like go find the shaft that goes down to three and tie your rope off and slide down. So I like these different interconnectivities and things spilling over between levels. And I think that makes it more interesting. Right. I agree. And I'll share something that is for any players. Uh, I'm not really spoiling anything here because 
um, this would become very obvious the very first time that the adventurers went into my particular dungeon is that there is a central shaft which connects to every single level and you can enter in and go to any level that you want it's a bottomless pit and it's a spiral that you're walking down along the out along the walls of this bottomless pit lined with bones walking upon stairs of bones and the fact that it goes bottomless gives you hopefully this idea of i might just end up in the realm of the dead cool and who knows who knows where we go from here it's up to the characters to decide do we keep going down and wander into one of these lower levels and that's something that harkens back to one of my favorite modules which is b2 keep on the borderlands when you walk into the canyon where the caves of chaos exist you're simply looking at a series of cave openings along this uh, alcove of walls here right so you've got this, this simple little valley where it's lined with caves there are caves on the lower levels caves on the higher levels caves nearer to the entry point caves further away from the entry point and there's even a a rumor that the players can learn about that says start here the other ones have bigger monsters but there's nothing to prevent first level characters from going oh look at that one way up there on the far back end <laughs> of this of this little area let's go let's start there and really get themselves into trouble i think that's great it is a design feature because it encourages well it opens up the opportunity for a push your luck kind of mechanic mm-hmm where you uh, might think by your wits you could get by on a level higher than you normally would go to or lower than you normally go to and thereby pick up uh, treasure you know, out of scale with what you, what you have gotten on the first level. And I like that. It encourages players to do dumb things, which is always fun. <laughs> when you were doing this, did you come across any of the elements that you filled in as a necessity of checking off items on your list, but really wish you could have gone back to later and spent some more time on? Oh, sure. I mean, I think this process is littered with loose ends that I want to tie off later, but I think you'd have to get comfortable with those. Otherwise you're never going to make it to the end of the week. Well, what's one that actually kind of stuck out at you and you would have like one of the first things that you're going to go back to and, and actually kind of flesh out a little bit more. I have this sort of loose concept about these amber-like gemstones on the second level that are being hoarded by these rogue fungus-controlled ants. In fact, they're kind of like hippie ants. They hang out in the fungal garden, and they, by having this third eye open, they're experiencing all kinds of different colors. And like, so they're kind of tripping out. Um, but they have these amber stones that they've collected from the next level down, which get used in this elaborate mechanism that, because uh, this thing, whole thing is supposed to be a tomb, but the first level is a false tomb and kind of a temple thing. And then um, on the very bottom level, you have these skulls, and, and there's basically like a theater. And you um, put position the skulls and the gems in such a way that uh, you shine a light through them and they uh, will show you memories from the past uh, of this race. But I, I haven't really worked all of that out. I want the, again, I want to make it obvious, like what you do with these things. So I, I, was, I put a pedestal there and I was like, okay, that's where the, this, this, the gem and the skull goes. But I'm thinking, how do I, 
how do I make that really explicit? Do I do it with murals on the wall that show it? Do I do it with, you know, like how, what's a way that I can uh, make it obvious, but not uh, make players feel like they figured it out. I guess just in general, my third level was pretty sketchy. For me, I struggled with the treasures. Oh, okay. And one of the prompts in your booklet is, you know, pick three treasures and place them, you know, create three unique treasures and place them. And I actually really struggled with that. And it's something that when I got done with it, I felt like they're weak and especially problematic in the sense that once I rolled up all the treasures, there's a serious lack of magic items, uh, especially magical weapons. And I noticed that as I was placing monsters, the deeper levels actually require you to have some magic weapons in order to do any damage mm-hmm. to some of the monsters there. And that could be problematic. It could just be a nature of things. But there's that part of me that feels like, oh, I really should think about that and see if it doesn't make sense to place some specific magical weapons early so that resourceful parties can uh, at least have a chance at the lower levels. And maybe it's not. And maybe it becomes a quest um, if they run into these challenges. It could be great fodder for a, a side quest to track down rumors of where they could actually locate them, mm-hmm. uh, locate actual magical weapons. So uh, so when you were randomly generating treasure, none of, there weren't any magic items that came up through that? It was extremely... Um, Minimal, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> think I had... Well, I'm just looking at I'm just looking at one of them right now, and uh, the treasure that actually got rolled up was two pieces of jewelry, any two uh, magic items, and one potion. So th- that that's one that actually has some, but it's specifically not weapons. Right, okay. Um, and that, that was another thing. Oh, here, uh, I do have another one here. It's uh, one magic weapon or armor, but that happens to be all the way down on the third level. So if- I wonder if that step then should come after the random generation of treasures, because then you could sort of fill in what you needed. I I was thinking about it in terms of, and again, this is... This is a draft of a set of instructions, right, that we're working through to see where we can improve on them. But I think my intent was to make sure that there was at least one remarkable treasure on each level that didn't come off of the, like, prescribed lists. Mm-hmm. Something a little more interesting. And I did do that. And the, the ones that I picked were evocative and specific to the environments or to the themes, but not necessarily not necessarily a specific type of item. For example, I have some what I'm calling lesser relics of law that they can find. There's the opportunity to access a library, which has very specific information and it could be a resource mm-hmm. for the players. And then another place that could be a source of new spells. Okay, cool. So I don't know if that quite matches the three unique pieces description, but that's what I came up with. Oh, I think so. When when I was working with it, but then I was thinking back, and it, it's all a layering process. The more times you come back to this and think about what are the themes, what fits, and is there a story here? And I think, for me, that was the fun of this, is what's the story here? It's not just a collection of rooms, uh, it's not just a collection of monsters, but there's there's something going on here. There's something happening here right. that is uh, revealed through the selection of monsters and rooms and descriptions and so on. 
One thing I really like about the process is because you're pushing through these things so quickly and leaving loose ends behind, they give you places that are hungry for more development, right? That you want to go back to. And it's a little bit like uh, there's a Hemingway, uh, when he would write, he would finish the day in the middle of a sentence, not because he'd run out of ideas, but because then the next day when he got up and he went down to write, he just finished the sentence and keep writing, right? He knew, he knew where he left off. And I think these little loose ends are actually uh, a feature and not a bug in the sense that they, they give you the desire to go back and build more. That's really cool. So there's probably two other things we should talk about before we move on from dungeons. One of them is monsters. Um, the monsters, I liked the idea of placing a handful of monsters and then letting the rest be determined by random, by wandering monsters. And so I did the same thing you did in terms of making a monster, wandering monster table for outdoors as well as indoors. But it wasn't super intentional for me because what I actually did was I was going through monster lists and basically making a monster list for my world. And then I realized I was overdoing it and, uh, and then divided that list into outdoor wins and indoor wins and kind of just, you know, said, okay, that's enough, right? Like I'm o- overdoing it, overthinking it and, uh, made sure I had my, my dungeon level monsters, uh, wandering monsters kind of tied down. And then I, then I stopped. Well, I think the exercise as it's written Choose 11 monsters and place them throughout the level. More dangerous ones go lower. I mean, it's it's a great prompt. And actually thinking about 11 different types of monsters that fit the theme of the dungeon is really cool. And it really got me thinking because I have a very narrow theme for this dungeon. And I was really challenged. Once I filled in the first obvious choices, Mm -hmm. and I think the obvious choices were less than half of that list. And now I really have to think about, oh, what's going on here? And I'll be honest with you, some of my inspiration for this came from watching uh, media and totally unrelated media. So my, my wife and I were fans of the television show Bones. And one of the aspects of that is all of the information that can be gleaned from a dead body in order to determine the the cause of the the murder, the uh, location in which the murder uh, took place, and the identity of the victim uh, and or potentially the murderer. And one of the things that really gets hammered home is there's there's a character who looks at the bugs and the soil and all of the different elements of the dead body. And I'm like, duh, (laughs) you know, one of the things that was missing from my list was this idea of, of creatures that spawn from death. And suddenly that began to fill in, you know, numerous spots. And I strictly worked with our source game, uh, delving deeper and only went from that list. Okay. One of the things that is, I think, necessary here is these are broad strokes again, but then coming back and really looking at each of those monster choices and saying, what is what does it mean when I say zombie? What does it really mean? Yeah, Because it could mean a lot of things. It could be something that happened to somebody, or it could be purposeful in that this was a created zombie. And those are just two examples and I think that's that's one of the, the, the things where coming back to this and riffing on those themes gets to be really, really fun. Yeah, I agree. I, I stuck with their list as well, but I, I renamed some of them. So um, I think they have dogs or wolves, and I made them into hyenas, reskinning them a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
as far as these bubble maps goes, I don't know if people know what I'm talking about when I say this, but uh, you, you draw some circles or squares or whatever shapes you feel like on a page. Maybe they sort of look like what the rim would be. Maybe they don't. And you write into that bubble an idea. Like uh, I'll talk about my ant layer, right? So I, you know, I have a bubble with like fungal garden and a bubble with underground lake for their water source and a bubble for the room of the queen's gars or whatever. And then I connect those with lines. And sometimes I'd write on the lines like downslope or slippery or choked with uh, dead bodies or whatever. And basically then just kind of make a flow map, uh, not worrying about if the lines are a certain length or they had, you know, I don't even do this on squares, right? I'm just doing this on blank paper and just trying to get the general flow of where people could go in exploring the space and making sure that it's not too linear, that it has, you know, different ways in and out of places, different paths through, when I went to that, instead of getting focused on making that grid map of the temple, I, everything opened up for me. Within about 40 minutes, I had all three of my levels sort of planned out in bubble maps. Then I was deciding, you know, how much of this do I actually need to draw on hex paper, if any of it, or graph paper, if any of it. Mm-hmm. How did you feel like that bubble map exercise came out for you? So it came from first starting with the prompt, which was determine how many rooms you're going to add to this level and then naming those rooms. And again, it was a case of the obvious ones came real easy and then working through, okay, thinking about the theme for the level, what else would be here and just kind of extrapolating from there. Then I'll actually tell you on one of my levels, a story emerged in the sense that I had a particular set of creatures but then to make it interesting, just so it just wasn't all these different creatures, when I started thinking about them, thinking about are there different factions of these creatures in this level, and then saying adamantly yes. And then that led to creating other areas, for example, uh, places where they interact with each other or they war with each other, and thinking about all the potential things that could happen as a result of that. And so that helped me place things around the entry level to that level of the dungeon and you know just like you said just drawing the lines between them but i drew them kind of hinting at what the level was like yeah so if the level was very organic and cavern like the lines kind of flowed all over the page but if it was more methodical then the lines were straighter. And just thinking about it in terms of, we talked about it before, walking the map. What areas can I get to? What areas do I have to go through to get to other areas and so forth? Exactly. I think that was a fun exercise. And I think here's where the instructions really were helpful, which is that number of rooms. Now, granted, these are all these aren't meant to be uh, prescriptive steps, right? They're rules that are made to be broken if, if you need to. Like if you need one more room to tell your story, then you add a room, mm-hmm. of course. You don't stop just because the, but it gives you a, an achievable goal, right? And so uh, the number of rooms, the numbers of ways up and down, the fact that you have to work all those in, and then the themes, the exact same thing that happened to you happened to me, which was the, the process itself began to tell me a story. And of course, I'm telling myself a story here, but it's because of the prompts and things that, I, that the story emerged. And, you know, so the story of the, this fungus theme that developed these rogue ants, and then the rogue ants needed a place that was separate from the other ants. And so I had this fungal garden, which was also part of the theme. And, and, and the fact that they had, you know, the connection between the second level and the first level, well, that's where the ants have tumbled into the, the rock tomb, right? And, you know, you, explaining, um, finding a way to explain all the things that you sort of generate 
gives you uh, just the impetus of a story. And I think you end up in places you wouldn't have if you did just sat down to say, okay, this is an abandoned dwarven mining operation. I'm going to draw it out. Right. So looking at the, the steps or the prompts for week three, what was your favorite prompt? I don't know. What was yours? You tell me and then I'll, maybe I'll think of mine. Sure. So my favorite one, and this was such a great exercise, was describe the entrance to the dungeon in seven words. Yeah, that's a good one. And I absolutely loved that one. And what I came up with was spiral stairs around a skull-lined bottomless shaft. And that once I wrote that, it was like, bingo. feel like creativity sometimes is just all about coming up with the right questions to ask. And and this is something that you and I have both had experience with, with Dungeon World, right? Dungeon World teaches you to ask interesting questions. And then if you ask an interesting question in the right way, then the players come up with, they may have come up with interesting answers anyway, but you sort of help them, right? You you spur something, you can see the light go on in their head. Like I know the answer to that question Mm -hmm. and they come up with an answer. And I, think a lot of that a lot of creativity is just driven by that so yeah i think my goal with the instructions is to just hit notes for people right to get them to get them over the hump whatever creative hump that is to get them over the blank page to get them past hurdles to you know let them know that they've achieved something so they can claim a victory each week and all that i want to say that absolutely this was with these instructions i was able to achieve something that i only really did once or twice before with extreme amount of effort and I think less success than I had this time around. I feel that what I did before was you know pales in comparison to to this. And I'm not saying that this is the greatest dungeon in the world, but I'm saying for myself, this is something I would just love to run. And I'm actually looking for taking this to the point where I, I get opportunities to actually run this for some folks. Fantastic. I would agree. And I'm not taking credit for all that and, and patting myself on the back and saying that. I mean, I I pulled some ideas from different places, one of them being like uh, Perilous Wilds uh, Dungeon Budget and, and I and some of it from Garrett Gygax's article and whatever. But I, I agree that the result was um, as good or better than I sort of expected and hoped it would be. I, I, I feel very attached to the thing I created. <laughs> That will do it for this week's Plundergrounds. Stay tuned. I'll get weeks four and five of the Gygax 75 challenge up shortly. In the meantime, thank you to Logan Howard of the Swordbreaker Zine and Podcast for my cool theme song. You can find links to all my projects at www.rayotus.com. That's R-A-Y-O-T-U-S. And at that site, you can find links to my Patreon if you'd like to support the show to the tune of a buck a month uh, for as many months or a few months as you'd like. Anything is appreciated. And thank you to all of my Patreons that make this show possible and my other creative efforts possible. Um, I love the whole network of creativity that's grown out through Patreon and the Internet. And I continue to believe that this hobby is best served by independent creators making cool stuff and uh, try to live by that and support other creators doing the same. So thank you very much. And until next time, look out for those rust monsters. <laughs>